It's FFA week. Helena is a proud sponsor of the future of agriculture. Today, the blue and gold jacket influences over 735,000 members from 8,817 chapters from across the United States. Check out Field Link episode 18 to learn how the FFA has impacted Helena employees. Herbicide application is getting close in many parts of the country. And in this episode, we visit with adjuvant brand manager, Austin Anderson, and Helena product specialist, Dr. Michael Kinty, about maximizing your investment with early weed control. Our guest commodity advisor, Jody Lawrence, will break down the impact of President Biden's recent trip to the Ukraine and how it could impact the commodity markets. And then finally, we'll travel to California to visit with agronomist Paul Kraut about the agronomic state this season in wine grapes and how this critical time could impact grape yields. Stay tuned for this episode of FieldLink. And joining us today here on FieldLink is Dr. Michael Kinty uh, and uh, brand manager Austin Anderson. Uh, Dr. Kinty, tell us a little bit about your background and kind of what you do today. I took a path into Agriculture, that's very unusual. I'm an Air Force brat. My grandfather was a surgeon. My mom was a nurse. And just by chance, I fell in love with farming by hanging out with some of my friends. Um, I started in the industry 40 years ago in with Sandoz doing basic research. Uh, from there, I, I jumped into soybean breeding, completed my doctorate in genetics, um, did that for about 10 years, and then had an opportunity to get back in the industry with uh, – company called American Cyanamid, was a tech rep. Also got to utilize my genetics with some of the, the new Cleveland Rice technology. And in 2000, came to work for Helena as a nutritional product specialist. We had a um, reorganization in 2008. They asked me to be in charge of killing things. So uh, since 2008, I've been managing uh, our adjunct portfolio, BAP, seed treatments. Initially, it was half the U.S. ag and all U.S. specialty, and then in 2011, they decided they need more product specialists, and since then, I've been in the Southern Business Unit. Okay, and and uh, with us, brand, uh, brand manager, Austin Anderson, uh, head of adjuvants. Uh, Austin, welcome to Field Inc. Well, thanks, Bill. Uh, just a little bit of background on myself. Uh, so I, I don't necessarily have as long of a history as, <laughs> as some of the others here, <laughs> here that are in the room, but... Uh, I started my career with Syngenta about uh, 10 years ago, uh, where I started out as a uh, just a retail sales rep over in eastern North Carolina, so uh, all the way close to the beach, so where I worked in a lot of the crops like uh, tobacco, corn, cotton, soybeans, sweet potatoes, watermelons, pickling cucumbers, you name it, they grow it. So uh, I got the chance to work uh, both the CP and the seeds business uh, for Syngenta, so uh had a, had a good experience there, and then about four years ago, I uh, moved to Memphis where I uh, was a marketing manager for them, uh, same company, uh, where I managed uh, especially fungicides, especially insecticides, and uh, the digital um, aspects of what uh, Syngenta brings to the market. And then uh, back in November of this year, I started my journey uh, learning more about adjuvants with Helena as the uh, brand manager here in Memphis. Great. Well, guys, it's great to have you here today on FieldLink, and we're going to deep dive into a product called Grounded as we get ready for uh, spring planting. And uh, 
uh, growers start to look at, hey, what is going to be in my tank? And we're going to prepare them to have a product like Grounded to help make their herbicides perform a little bit better. One of the products that we do have here at Helena is Grounded. Um, Austin, tell us a little bit about Grounded and the history of Grounded and what are some of the features of that product? So uh, Grounded is a product that uh, Helena launched back in 1997. Uh, it's really one of our true uh, multifunctional adjuvants. Uh, there's a lot of different components that are involved. So I think we have a good uh, uh a product about getting the product on the ground, you know, uh, drift control, keeping the AI, you know, right there in that top soil profile, um, and really compatibility. So as we know that, you know, when we get into behind the planter type applications, there's, you know, only God knows how many different applications and different mixes of chemicals that can go out there. So uh, being able to make sure that we can make those things agree in the tank and then also being able to make sure that, uh, the usability of whatever products that we're using really uh, uh, comes to the forefront around being able to clean out the tank efficiently and being able to make sure that we're keeping time at the forefront of uh, every grower's mind. You bet. And, you know, look, you know, today most producers are investing quite a lot into their herbicide programs. And the neat thing about Grounded is it really ensures that we're putting that herbicide on the soil where it needs to go to, you know, so we can optimize the overall efficiency for the investment we've made. Dr. Kinty, tell us a little bit, uh, what are some of the key factors or attributes about Grounded that really separates it from a lot of other products out there? Well, it was originally designed to be deposition and drift. And it goes back late 70s, coming into the 80s before we launched it. But as we started, we went into Roundup Ready, got away from pre-emergence herbicides, and now with resistance management, a lot of the old chemistries come back. And one of the problems, most of those are very water-soluble. And you make an application, it, as soon as it gets moisture, it moves into the soil, you get more, it moves through it. Adding grounded, we found in the early years that it helps, to, another easy way to say it, it holds the herbicide in the kill zone. Because if, if a pre-emergence herbicide moves below two, two and a half inches, it goes below the weed seed. The weed seed has to germinate to grow through a pre, take it up and die. So it's not that the herbicide disappeared from the soil. It just moved out of the kill zone and grounded stands out from everything else being able to do that with any pre-emergence applied. So uh, what are some typical, I guess, uh, considerations growers need to be thinking about if they're going to plan on using a product like Grounded this year? What are some cultural practices they need to think about in ter terms of uh, you know, including Grounded into their mix? Um, I think number one, if they're using any herbicide that is a pre-emergence, if they're doing a pre-burn down or straight pre's, they need to use it. They need to consider the rate to use based on if you're just bare ground, you know, normal tillage, you can get by as little as 1%. If you've got um, what I call minimum till, stale seabed where there's very minimum, you need to probably be a pint. If you're completely no-till, you need to be thinking a pint and a half or a quart, full quart because the herbicide will get tied up in the organic matter. Combining uh, grounded into the tank with the herbicide, it, uh, to use a term our chemists used to use, oil phase. It will act like an oil. It'll move off that uh, organic matter and get to the dirt where it'll do its job. Austin, you've worked with lots of, you were in, in the industry for several years. Um, suppliers really like to have 
grounded in their tanks, uh, it makes a lot of those basic chemistries work and perform a little bit better. Is that accurate? Yeah, I'd say so. I think when you talk about a lot of the pre-emerger herbicides that we use in the business today, uh, a lot of them have uh, high water solubility. So uh, from the standpoint of, you know, you think about an inch of rain, it'll move a product an inch down in the soil. Uh, grounded really just helps with that weather. You're talking about something like atrazine, metribuzin, or espantolachlor even uh, gives us a good a good advantage uh, when it talks about being able to lay the foundation of a uh, a season where you really want to start clean and stay ahead of those weeds that are out there in the field. You bet. And, and I think it's really important uh, as we kind of learn a little bit more about grounded today is it really keeps that herbicide in that kill zone, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Kitty, uh, in that place. But from an environmental standpoint, what a, what a big win. Uh, you know, we're all concerned about water quality and, and, and soil health. Grounded can really only add to, you know, benefiting uh, the grower by keeping that herbicide in that specific zone versus leaching. Exactly, because one of the biggest concerns that, that uh, the EPA and I think non-ag people is what's getting in our water table. Sure. And herbicides are very water-soluble, so they're logically could move. So if you can hold it where it can do its job, be taken up by weed, or being up where there's a lot of um, uh aerobic activity and microbes so it could the herbicide that's not used is biodegraded you keep it out of the groundwater so it is a very environmental friendly um, use that most people don't ever think about that little added benefit and 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 you said something on the opening too one of the benefits with uh grounded is it really helps out with drift and deposition as well yes it does it um, everybody knows drift is a hot button because of some of the auxins over the top of crops. In that particular case, they want big droplets, which gravity takes over. When you're using soil applied chemistry, you need reduced driftable fines. So you get a nice uniform spray that goes to the target and stays on the target and then gets on the soil. So it's, it is providing drift, um, and does an excellent job and for years was the leading drift reduction agent we sold. So guys, talk to me a little bit about where grounded should be used and what kind of cropping systems is it most applicable for? We, we talked a little bit about corn and soybeans and cotton. What about some other crops? There's not a crop. If you're making a pre-emergence application, whether it's rice, sweet potatoes, uh, chili peppers, onions, it does not matter you need to put grounded in your system. And, and certainly in the tree crops as tree well. Tree crops as well. You bet in vineyards, I would imagine, just anything. Anything. Uh, okay. Well, it just really allows you to get more out of your pre-emergent herbicide. You know, we, we talk about the importance of residuals, you know, and uh, just being able to make small things like an addition of an adjuvant like grounded uh, from the standpoint of being able to say, you know, hey, we really want to be able to get that, you know, two weeks you know, three weeks out of those residual herbicides that we're paying good money for. So just being able to make small adjustments like that really can make all the difference. One of the things I just thought about that I don't think about much because I work the ag sector, but lawn care operators, golf right. course superintendents, they got a solid mass of something. Right. And they use a lot of pre-emergence this time of year to eliminate weed problems later in the spring when the golfers come out and kids playing in the yard. If you don't use a quarter grounded, it will not get all the way through. So a lawn care 
owner would end up doing retreats, which costs some time and money. So grounded is great insurance to get that herbicide to the soil instead of hung up in the thatch. And definitely uh, grounded has a, a long history. Uh, it's not a newer product, nope. but it's a proven workhorse for yes. our portfolio. Um, what kind of uh, feedback have you received from growers and other uh, uh, you know, suppliers about grounded over the years? From the supplier standpoint, every major basic manufacturer, tech service, R&D guys, reach out to me every year. Hey, I need two and a half gallons or 10 gallons of grounded for my trial work. Because sure. they recognize the value, not only from the pre-emergence standpoint, some of them brag on it on compatibility, and then the obviously drift. So it's, you know, being a basic manufacturer, they can't, yay, Helena's grounded is the best thing. Sure. Because they're kind of in a, in a situation they can't do that. But uh, behind the scenes, there's a preferred adjunct for them in their trial work. Well, uh, coming from my experience being in the industry, uh, you know, adding a product like Grounded can be uh, the difference between having to walk a complaint and having a success with a product in a spray application. So when you think about uh, just what that means for, you know, the, the basic suppliers and other people like that in the marketplace, you know, it's just time, energy, and effort that you don't have to spend when you make that extra investment to be able to make sure that that product that you're making that application is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. That can definitely make their product look really well, and and ours as well. You know, we're utilizing it. And, uh, Michael, what kind of recommendations are you using Grounded for for some of your growers in, in Mississippi and Arkansas and so forth? In the soybean market, we're pushing Antares Complete, uh, usually chasing the planter, and we definitely want to – I prefer a pint of Grounded in that situation, but it used to at least a minimum of 1% because if you go below 1%, you lose the drift. Mm-hmm. Um if a guy, uh, which is more in the West Texas, uh, West Oklahoma market, their corn herbicides are usually chasing the planter rather than early posts like we do over here in the Delta states. Grounded goes with Empyros, and and that's that's to do out there. Um, rice farmers, the the early season, they're putting it with you know pendameth, Helena pendamethlin, all kind of other products. Um, any sinister behind cotton in West Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, we will not sell Sinister without grounded in the tank to keep it where it's supposed to be and provide a very long um, residual activity. So it certainly sounds like as growers get ready for their herbicide programs this year as the planters go and start putting their programs together, they really need to have grounded as a part of their overall program. Yes, yes, they do. Okay, guys, I want to thank you both for joining me here today on FieldLink. Um uh, and learning a lot more about Grounded and the benefits of that adjuvant uh, as it uh, helps really, quite honestly, uh, make some of our herbicide decisions perform even at a better state than the average product out there. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Now, joining us from Nashville is Jody Lawrence with the Strategic Advisors. Jody, uh, grain markets, we've got uh, things kind of slowing down right now, just kind of hanging out there. Uh, what's the latest update on the Commodity Report, Jody? Well, Bill, it's good to be back. Yeah, it's been, since we spoke a couple weeks ago, it's been uh, fairly range-bound and pretty choppy. There really isn't a lot of new uh, big developments in the market. People were worried about Argentina's drought, and it's not gotten any better. It's not gotten any worse, and their harvest is still further out. But Brazil's harvest 
is moving along. It's about 25% complete. And that really has been kind of the biggest fundamental impact. Obviously, we've got a lot of world political tension with the Chinese weather balloon and our deteriorating relationship with China and how that will affect their interest in buying anything from us. And then obviously the continued escalation in the Russian-Ukraine war that looks to just not have any end, despite the fact that uh, and the biggest event over there is the March 19th deadline for the Black Sea Export Corridor deadline. And those negotiations uh, are ongoing. So it, it will be interesting to see if uh, Putin does change course this time. It's very similar to what happened uh the first two russia is saying one thing and uh, kind of giving the market the impression they don't want to do anything but in both previous cases they have followed through and kept the corridor open so uh next three weeks we're gonna we're just gonna see a lot of information and that being uh one of the biggest things that's going to hit the market yeah definitely uh, uh a lot of questions happening right now in Ukraine and, and that side of the globe. Um, we'll, we'll learn a lot more, clearly, uh, once we figure out uh, what uh, Russia wants to do with that Black Sea Agreement. Jody, let's uh, let's move to the other part of the world, uh, back down to South America. Uh, you referenced Brazil, some, some harvest things taking place there. Some recent reports here, they've had some frost in some markets. Any insight on how that may or may not impact uh, the U.S. soybean market? Well, we're recording this on President's Day, so the markets have not opened for the weekend news. Biden uh, made a surprise visit to Kiev. The frost, which I've, I've got to assume is a very early frost for uh, Argentina, uh, and then the dry outlook, plus how quickly Brazil's harvest is going at when they do get dry enough conditions. So uh, it's it, hard to judge right now. I'd say on balance, these are a little bit bullish. But until we can get further along with a lot of information that's still coming out, how big is Brazil's harvest going to be? How hurt are Argentina's yields because of the drought and uh, this early season freeze? Uh, we'll probably kind of be stuck in this churning mode for a while. As we approach the USDA coming out at their Ag Outlook Forum with acreage projection, on-farm income projection, and other things where people can start to calculate how many acres we're going to have and a variety of other things that uh, you know are going to be huge to determine uh, you know where's fair value for the price of corn is it you know right here uh, between five ninety and six dollars December futures is or November beans at uh, thirteen seventy five to fourteen fair value when we get Brazil's outlook you still have a, an awful lot of uncertainties and the puzzles just have not been put together enough to or the pieces have not been put together enough to see a clear enough picture on the pu the price puzzle yet but right now uh you know the markets are kind of at the upper end of all the recent ranges so uh, happy for the support and the biggest reason because of that is as we approach the last few days of the insurance uh, the revenue insurance dates for February and those averages, we've only got, uh, let's say, be six more days to do those averages. The insurance averages are 
uh, on the historically high side with, uh, as of last Friday, the 17th, December corn average is sitting right at 595 and a quarter cent, while November beans are at 13, uh, let's just call it 1375. So good numbers that with normal yields, you would uh, figure out with all the different options from the crop insurance side, that when you start adding percentage to get a, above the base 75%, you can really put yourself in a position to ensure a nice, uh, a, a solid profit, certainly not the biggest profits that we've seen over the last three years on margin, but we uh, are in a position right now where the revenue-based insurance averages uh, are coming in with solid numbers that if everybody uh, pays attention to the program, should give them a nice uh, safety net uh, of uh, profitable margin. Yeah, definitely. We got a handful of days here to make some decisions. There, most producers do, as it relate relates to crop insurance. So, certainly a, a strategy that should be in everybody's mind uh, as we enter the twenty three season. Jody, what are some upcoming reports coming up here that you're going to have your eyes on and, and conferences and so forth? Well, you've got the USDA as they come out with their late winter uh, outlooks. Uh, their, uh, all their economists get together and put out some general baseline numbers that the biggest ones are always going to be about what they expect acreage to be and what they expect trend line yields to be. And although there are some really high private estimates floating around for corn in the 93 to 93 and a half million acres at the expense of beans, at the expense of cotton, uh, that uh, it, we are finding, we think that the USDA isn't going to do anything crazy and that those numbers are going to be fairly similar to where they have been the past couple of years with corn coming out at about 90 million acres with a 178 trend and then uh, 88 million acres, give or take a few, for beans with a 152 and a half trend line yield. So with those two, the market and everybody determining uh, prices into late winter, spring, and into planting, or at least getting an idea about how many acres we have, because it's amazing uh, just how much one million acre shift really matters to the the final uh, ending stocks. You can easily move the market, you know, uh, 20, 30 cents just on a million acre shift from beans to corn. Or if Mother Nature and we have a a very mild wet winter or excuse me mild wet spring that has some prevent plant acres taken to it uh, jody we got some traveling coming up here uh pretty shortly uh you're going to be in memphis uh this week february 24th and 25th uh for the uh mid-south gin show you've got some uh, uh presentations you're going to be given yes i'm going to be uh hanging out with uh, all of our friends at uh at helena's booth and talking to everybody that comes by, we've got a couple different side meetings at one at 11.30 and one at 2.30 in room 103 of the convention center. So if anybody is in Memphis for the Gen Show, I'd love to uh, talk to you for a little while and just stop by and I'll tell you what we're thinking about for all the row crop markets as well as cotton and wheat 
and uh, what we're seeing, you know, heading into early March, which it's hard to believe we're already here. Right, definitely. And then we'll follow up uh, on March 9th and 10th and 11th. We'll be in Orlando for the Commodity Classic, and you'll have an opportunity to talk to growers there. Yes, and it, you know what our schedule is there, so I'll let you fill everybody in on that. But looking forward to seeing everybody. That's always a great show. Walk around, kick some tires, meet some new, you know, see some old friends and make some new friends and just get a chance to, uh, to talk about everything before we get really serious about planting the 23 crop. Well, definitely a lot of things happening in the markets, and uh, we look forward to having you, Jody, at those events coming up here in uh, the next week and as well as the uh, next couple of weeks down in Orlando. So hopefully everybody can stop by, and uh, if you're planning on attending either the Gin Show in Memphis or the Commodity Classic, we certainly want to have you stop by and catch up with Jody. Yes, looking forward to seeing everybody, and uh, always always fun, especially even though we've had a mild winter to get to someplace a little bit warmer and probably wear some shorts while we're walking around in Orlando. Jody, I want to thank you once again for joining us here on FieldLink uh, for this episode uh, and learning a little bit more about the grain markets that are in front of us. Thank you, Bill. See everybody at the Gen Show. All right, and welcome back to FieldLink. I'm your host, Bill Smith, and uh, today we're going to get grape-wise. And joining us from California is Paul Kraut. He's in the studio today, and we're going to talk about bud break to bloom. Uh, Paul, welcome to FieldLink. Hey, thank you, Bill. Great to be here. Hey, it's awesome to have you here in the studio today. And uh, Paul, we want to get a little more grape-wise. Help us understand what's really happening in the fields right now uh, as it relates to wine grapes. So right now we're finishing up pruning. Um, which is probably one of the most important cultural practices that we do um, in in the grape industry. Um, how well we prune and how we prune um, really sets the stage for growth um, for the entire season. It, it will set the stage for how many clusters we have, how much fruit we have, the kind of fruit load that we have, um, how the vines grow. So that's a cultural practice that we do um, that's really, really critical. Um, the second piece that we see once we're complete with pruning, um, we start to come into bud break. Um, that's where the vines start to come out of dormancy. Um, usually we, we prune as late as possible um, just to, to minimize freeze, you know, the frost potential. Um, those little buds are really sensitive to, right. to frost and we get late spring um, frost uh, in California um, and uh, they can be susceptible to that. So that's why we, we, we prune so late. But once bud break happens, um, you know, it's again, a critical stage. Um, your fertility program Hopefully your grape-wise fertility program from the prior year is going to affect how strong and how well the vines come out of dormancy. So if you made a post-harvest fertilizer application um, back in you know, September, October, the vine is going to store all of those nutrients and use them in as stored energy for bud break because plants are not taking up nutrients through the roots right. at bud break. Um, you know, it, it takes until there's usually 12 inches of, of shoots out there before the vines start taking up nutrients and, and water and the like. So that's all stored nutrients from the prior year. Um, so that's why it's important to have a good fertility program. Right. And, uh, and then, you know, as we, we proceed um, with bud break, we uh, yeah, we've got a lot of things going on. So let's go back to pruning a little bit more. You know, mm -hmm. I think for the average listener that's not really in the uh, the grape industry, mm -hmm. you know, 
when we hear about pruning, I mean, everybody's parents and grandmas, you know, they always prune the roses <laughs> and so forth. Yep. Talk to us a little bit about that hands-on approach to pruning. There's, there's a lot going on there. There, there is absolutely. And, and, and in, in the wine grape industry, industry, there's, there's uh, hand pruning. Most of the pruning takes place with, with field crews, with, with somebody with a pair of clippers sure. going through and making cuts on, on the vine. And, and what we're doing is we're removing um, the right amount of wood because um, wine grapes are fruitful in second year wood. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to have shoots from last year, but we only need, in most cases, we only need two buds um, to grow. So we're pruning that big, long, three, four foot long cane okay. all the way down to, to two buds wow. um, usually. And, and then those two buds turn into shoots for the next year. Um, and, and that's where the fruit, those are fruitful buds. Um, and so that's, that's what we're doing. So we manage, um, if we want to have a lighter crop load, we prune to one bud. Um, if we want to have more crop, we, we prune to two buds. Um, that's in a, that's in a, what's called a spur pruning style. There's a whole bunch of different styles out there and everything, but, um, but for hand, hand harvested, hand, hand pruned stuff, that's, that's usually what we're doing. So, so we have a, a, a worker who's out there trained and they're, they're making on a, um, per vine, they're making anywhere from, you know, eight to 16 cuts. Okay. And then you have 2000 vines per acre. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of hands um, on. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot of hand work. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work and you have a, but you, when you have trained people who can do it they they do a really good job and that can make or break, um, you know, yield and, and, and growth for the, for the coming year, if you don't prune very well. Interesting. And, it, and it's important for, you know, I think our average listener out there to understand, you know, how intense this crop really is and, and how different it is compared to other commodity crops. Absolutely. I mean, we're dealing with a, a permanent crop and um, probably, I mean, I'm a little biased because I'm a grape guy, but sure. uh, but probably one of the most hands-on managed crops out there. You know, you hear, you see trees, almonds, nuts, you know, citrus, that is, you know, the, the, they don't need to be pruned. Um, a lot of it is done by machines, um, you know, at once, once they're up and growing, but every year wine grapes need to be pruned, um, in order for them to, to keep producing. So there's so many touches by hand on wine grapes, um, there's pruning. And then as we get into, um, you know, after bud break, um, we get into about 12 inches of shoot growth. We do what's called shoot thinning. Okay. Um, so where we remove non-fruitful shoots, because some shoots come out, um, they don't have flower. They don't have clusters on them. They don't have those infant grape clusters. Well, that is a, that's a, a sink. That's going to, they're, they're like suckers. So right. we want to remove those. So we go through with a, with another crew and they remove all those shoots. Because they're just burning up energy. They're just yeah. stealing Ex- from the crop. Exactly. And, and what we want at the end of the day is all the plant's energy to go into into those shoots and into the into the clusters that are going to end up getting us getting us grapes. Well, that's definitely a grape wise strategy as it relates to even maximizing your fertility inputs too to make sure that those shoots are you know properly managed in order that you get the most efficiency out of your fertility plan. Absolutely, and and speaking of fertility, you know, around this time period, um, you know, the vines aren't taking up very much through the soil. However, they are needing a lot of nutrients. Their their demand starts to peak for nitrogen, for example, um, right after you know immediately after the the uh, at the pre bloom stage. Um, but they're not really taking up their not much nitrogen at the time, and so that's why um, 
we, I typically in my, in my grape wise fertility programs recommend uh, Coron Metra. Okay. Um, Coron, it's a foliar applied nitrogen source. So it's, it's also a very efficient nitrogen source. Um, we're typically making fungicide applications at that time. Okay. So it's a very good tank mix partner with those fungicides. Um, provides that little extra boost of nitrogen to those vines to really maximize, you know, their, their potential um, as they're going through this really critical phase. Cause, cause the vines at this time we're setting the stage um, physiolo- physiologically um, to set fruit because that's the, you know, that's our end goal, right? We don't, we don't, I don't care how tall your shoots are, or how many leaves you have. It's all about ripening those grape clusters. And, and this time period is, is really setting that foundation to have a strong, um, strong fruit set and then strong ripening period for Asian, um, and harvest. Wow. And, and, and a product like Coron Metric can certainly contribute to that uh, success for that crop at that time of year, considering how, uh, you know, efficient it is compared to other traditional nitrogens. Exactly. I mean, when we, you know, the, the industry standard is, is to do, to make soil applied nitrogen applications, um, you know, post bud break, uh, again, the challenges I mentioned, uptake is very, very slow. Sure. Um, soil temperatures are, are, are low. It's the soils are usually wet. Um, so you don't get very good, efficient uptake by the plant. You can put, you know, you can put a, you know, a hundred, you know, hundred gallons out or, you know, you can put 10 gallons out or whatever. The plants are only going to take up maybe 60% of that. Sure. Um, and so, whereas with a foliar nitrogen source, you're going to be getting, upwards of 90% efficiency because you're targeting a very specific part of the plant. Um, we don't need to get a whole ton of nitrogen on. We just need to get that small amount, that difference between what the roots can take up and what the plants are demanding um, for peak efficiency. Wow. And, and Paul, you know, kind of along with that mix with a fungicide and a product like Quarren Metra, are there some fungicides or excuse me, rather, are there some adjuvants that you recommend going into that uh, uh, grape wise mix? Yeah, no, no question. Typically the type of materials that we're applying um, pre bloom, usually we're, we're applying things like fungicides, like sulfur and copper and, okay. um, and oil, um, you know, horticultural oil um, to, to a certain extent, we mm-hmm. really don't get into the, the systemic chemical fungicides yet. Um, and so with those materials and with a nutritional product like, like Coron coverage is really, really dependent. Um, and so we're using usually a non-ionic surfactant like induce or kinetic. Those are two really, um, you know, very effective adjuvants that go into our early season tank mixes because we've got contact fungicides. So you need really good coverage. Um, we have nutrients and they need to get really good coverage over all the different plant tissue surfaces. So we want to get something like kinetic on to, to spread that spray deposit all over the plant um, and uh, you know, and help with coverage. So those are, those are the keys. Definitely two good uh, adjuvant uh, recommendations there for a bean or rather in this case, a grape wise program and uh, certainly uh, a couple proven adjuvants out there in the industry. Yeah. I mean, between kinetic and induce, I think they've been both been around for about 35 years. So, um, you know, they've, they're, they're, in my opinion, they're the industry standard in their class, Um, you know, both efficacy wise and utility wise. You know, Paul, you know, as we're kind of moving from, you know, the bud break towards that bloom, what are some other things grape producers need to really be keeping their eyes out for as we kind of move into that bloom stage? Well, bloom is, as as you can imagine, one of the most critical phases um, in, honestly, in any flowering crop. 
it's it's that time period where those flowers are fertilized they're they're pollinated and you set fruit and and so there's a there's a number of conditions that are really critical um, for that time period um, obviously weather temperature um, and the like those are things we can't really control but things we can control um, are the you know the plants nutrient status um, so typically around that time is when I take tissue samples, um, is the pre-bloom time period. I usually take tissues, um, you know, usually two weeks prior to bloom. Um, and, uh, and what that does is that gives me the kind of, um, you know, the information that I need in order to make potentially corrective nutrient applications or supplemental nutrient applications, um, that can support, support bloom. Um, one of the key tissue, you know, tissue systems that, that, that I use is our extractor program. Um, and extractors is really effective because, you know, we take samples, um, when we get, when we receive those samples back, um, it comes back in a really easy to understand format. Um, there's nutrient tracking, um, levels. So as I take samples year over year, I'm able to see trends, um, for those different elements at sure. that time. So I'm able to see, okay, am I actually, you know, are we making any differences in our fertility programs? Are we, you know, cause the whole goal of a good, a really good fertility program is to re- actually reduce the amount of fertilizer you're applying. You're, right. you're building up plant health, you're building up, you know, soil levels to, to an extent where we're not really having to make a lot of corrective measures. Um, but yeah, the extractor samples are, are great. It allows me to track them year over year. I mean, throughout the season, um, and then using that information to to make you know to make my adjustments to my my fertility plan that I came up with in um, in uh, you know in the winter, um, and and typically those those revolve around you know foliar nutrients, mm-hmm. um, calcium, boron, and zinc are are probably three of the the most important nutrients that we're typically dealing with, um, calcium, because calcium is a really key component in, uh, cell wall structure. And so when you have, um, when, um, the grape, the berry, the flower is pollinated, the time period between pollination. And then when the berries are about the size of a BB, they've gone through, I want to say 16 cell divisions. Um, and then from that time, of, you know, from that BB size to full size, full cell expansion, um, they only go through only four more. So what we want to do is we want to, when those cells are dividing, we want to provide adequate calcium because calcium is a key component in in the cell wall structure. Mm -hmm. And the more calcium we have available, the stronger those cell walls are going to be so that you get, you get benefits of, of berry firmness. You get, um, you know, you get these stronger cells that then expand and fill up with juice. That's where the the juice comes from. The cells expand over, you know, and and grow 10x their their original size um, as that berry expands and then and then matures. So calcium is really key component there. Um, boron is really really critical in um, pollen formation and pollen tube formation. So actually, the the actual fertilization of the flower, um, boron is a, is a really critical key component. Um, and, uh, we found that supplemental boron, um, really increases pollination. Um, and in wine grapes, um, it's important that, uh, a lot of people don't realize that wine grapes actually have seeds in them. Um, and seeds contain a a lot of the, the important, um, flavor components, the tannins, um, that are in wine. And so we want to have, um, 
good seed formation as well. So a good, a good, you know, a typical berry has four seeds in it. Sure. Um, but there are under pollinated berries that might have three seeds, might have two seeds, might have a single seed. Um, and those affect the quality of the wine at the, at the, uh, at the end of the day. So wow. we want to make sure we have good seed formation. Um, and then finally zinc, uh, is, is the third, you know, kind of big, big nutrient involved there. Um, and zinc is involved in, um, a number of enzyme, um, um, production enzyme processes that, um, that help with, again, with pollination, um, and cell elongation and a whole, a whole host of things. But all of those three nutrients are really driven around setting good fruit. And, and that's, again, we have one chance every season with wine right. grapes. <laughs> one <laughs> to, shot. Yeah, yeah, we have one shot. And, and if we, if, if something, you know, if something goes wrong, then that can have a, a lasting effect on, you know, the yield and the quality of, of the fruit that you have for that whole, the rest of the season. Well, and I think what's really interesting when you break it down, like you just did, Paul, which was awesome, by the way, <laughs> uh, when you have your top three nutrients as calcium, uh, boron and zinc, in order to really know what that crop is, where it stands right now, mm-hmm. use an extractor. That's, that's the only Absolutely. Tool. Yeah. Abs- extra- the only way you can know, whether, you know, whether or not you have a deficiency situation or a sufficiency situation, because we're not, you know, we take samples and it's not, it doesn't always re- result in a fertilizer application, but we need to know, you, you need to have, you know, uh, a test done right. so you can actually see, okay, what am I deficient in? So then I can make corrective measures. So in those cases, I might take a tissue sample and I might be, okay, calcium's good, boron's good, but I'm deficient in zinc. So I need sure. to, I need to add zinc or bump it up, do something, yeah, yeah. Bump it, you know, and make an application, you know, um, because and, to uh, your point, yeah. you got that one shot. Yeah. And if that's you, it. If you miss it, <laughs> you're gone. It's yeah. all over. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And it's, 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 it's kind of scary sometimes people don't, don't, don't think, you know, you don't think about it. I think about it all the time just cause I'm sure. kind of a paranoid person when it comes to plant nutrition, but, yeah. but it's really, you know, it's like, oh man, this is my one shot this year. Yeah. And, and there's a lot riding on it. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's critical to not only be thinking about fertilizer, but be thinking about sampling and then being able to adjust your program and adjust your, your plan based on your samples during the season. Well, and, and as you point out, you know, extractor, part of the agri-intelligence program is a critical piece of becoming GrapeWise and a part of your GrapeWise program specifically out west. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, growers who are who are on our, our GrapeWise program, um, you know, as we mentioned before, it's it's an integrated program of building a fertility plan, um, you know, based on sampling, both soil samples, tissue samples in season, and water samples. Um, so utilizing our, our AquaLens water sample system um, to, to really see what, you know, what we have in our, in our water, um, which happens to be the largest input of, you know, of irrigated crops is water. Um, so it's really important to understand the chemistry of your water. Um, and so, you know, utilizing those, you know, those three technologies, um, and then AI 360, which allows us to, to monitor and to visualize, um, those samples on a, on a, on a geographic, um, format, um, and then, yeah, and then utilizing the correct inputs throughout the season and adjusting based on those samples. So utilizing tools like Coron, um, 
you know, like our Brexel um, micronutrients um, that are specifically designed for foliar foliar use, and they're designed to be tank mixed with, you know, fungicides and insecticides and things like that. Um, and I think that's something that's really interesting because, um, you know, when we make nutrient applications, we're, we usually don't make a nutrient only application. Um, it, it's just it's too expensive and it doesn't right. it doesn't make sense for for a grower to spend the money to pay a tractor driver for the diesel, for the tractor, for the equipment wear and tear to just make a nutrient application. So we do what we call piggyback rides or free rides where we're going to, they're making a fungicide application typically. Yep. So we want to piggyback onto that ride with not only fungicides, but with a nutrient. Well, one of the key things that, that people often don't think about is, is that, that fungicides and, and, and things like that um, can have negative interactions with nutrients. If you apply non chelated nutrients in that tank mix, they can bind, they can, they can, they can bind together, inactivating both the fertilizer and the nutrient. So Brexel is designed as a chelate, a foliar chelate um, that's designed to stay separate in, in the spray solution um, and, and then be available to the plant immediately on, on application. Well, definitely a lot of tools in the toolbox. Absolutely. And that's the key. It's, it's if, you know, we, we have a whole host of tools available to us at Helena um, and, and really GrapeWise um, is about utilizing the right tools, you know, at the right time, at the right place, at the right rate, the four R's. That's awesome. And, and, you know, when I sit back and listen to you and your passion about grapes and, and the great prize program, I think, you know, Paul, it's combining the art and the science of raising the best, whether it's table grapes or wine grapes out there. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, and we're lucky at, at Helena. Um, I have some really great colleagues who, who are just as passionate as I am about, about grapes. Um, in the Central Valley of California, we have some great table grape guys, um, good grape wine, wine grape guys um, mm -hmm. on the coast. Um, I have the, you know, the fortune to be able to, to work with, uh, you know, throughout the country with Helena. Um, yep. in, in next month, I'm going to be up in Oregon doing a grower meeting. Sure. Um, I've been to Texas. I mean, we grow grapes all over the country. It's awesome. I mean, and, and so, there's a lot of opportunity out there to, to be able to use some of the tools that are provided in GrapeWise, not just in California, but, but all over the country. It's sure. applicable. Um, grapes grow the same. They have the same pretty much basic needs anywhere you go. Um, and I think the, the, the beauty part of, of, of GrapeWise is that it's flexible and it's adaptable. Because um, grapes, it's not one size fits all. That's it's, right. it, is, it is prescriptive. Um, and the tools that we have allow us to identify, you know, what the specific needs are for the plant and to, to make them work. Awesome. And, and you're right. It's a, it's an interesting, certainly, uh, the wine industries continues to increase in popularity and we continue to see, you know, growth in this space, whether you're in New York or, or, or Texas, as you mentioned, yep. every state grows wine grapes at some level. Yes, indeed. Yep. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to see. Um, I've been exposed to, to grape growers. Yeah. All over the country. Um, and everybody's passionate about what they're doing. And, um, you know, I just, I, I'm definitely happy to be part of a, a really cool industry, um, in the grape industry that, 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 uh, allows that art, as you say, um, to come out because, sure. cause that's what wine is. So awesome. It's art in a bottle. <laughs> Great. Paul Kraut from California, a Helena product manager and agronomist. Thanks for joining us here on uh, Field. Bill, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. 
Thanks for joining us on this episode of FieldLink. Be sure to stop and see us at our booth in the Mid-South Gin Show in Memphis or at the Commodity Classic in Orlando, Florida. 